This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Recognizing Respiratory Distress by Dr. Monica Kleinman. Please note that in this video we will be following the guidelines used at Boston Children's Hospital. Some of this information may need to be modified based on the equipment, guidelines, and practices in place in your institution. Hello, my name is Monica Kleinman. I'm an attending physician in the Medical Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Children's Hospital of Boston. And today I'm going to be talking to you about the recognition of respiratory distress and failure in infants and children. Introduction. Uh, so we're going to be talking about recognition of respiratory distress and failure in an infant or child. And respiratory distress is one of the most common presenting signs of illness in a pediatric patient. It can represent a problem that doesn't necessarily primarily involve the lungs. A uh, systemic problem like sepsis or heart failure or a compensation for a metabolic acidosis as may occur in severe dehydration or in a toxic ingestion. But most of the time respiratory distress can be traced back to some primary problem with the pulmonary system. And different types of problems can present with different characteristic signs and symptoms. We're going to review those and uh, use this mannequin as well as some video to demonstrate the different types of lung disease that can produce different appearances of a child in respiratory distress. Tachypnea. When a, a child has a problem of any kind that interferes with gas exchange, or they need to excrete more gas, as in the case of a, a time when they're producing more CO2 than normal, their very first attempt at compensating for that is to increase respiratory rate. And so tachypnea is by far the most common and universal sign of respiratory distress in an infant. Unlike an uh, adult, who does have a, a more expandable chest cavity and stronger uh, intercostal muscles, the infant breathes already at a fairly high uh, lung capacity. And so that their ability to increase volume, tidal volume, by compensatory mechanisms is limited. It's much more efficient for them to breathe fast. And that's why tachypnea is the somewhat uniform or universal sign of respiratory distress. Now there's comfortable tachypnea, which typically occurs when an infant is uh, demonstrating a compensation for some primary lung problem like interstitial edema, something that will uh, reduce compliance of the lungs. And by being more tachypnic, they'll increase minute ventilation, which is tidal volume times respiratory rate. And this quiet, comfortable tachypnea can actually get to pretty significant rates. Uh, it's not unusual for a young infant to be able to breathe at 70, 80, 90, even 100 times a minute. 
and not look particularly uncomfortable uh, until one stops to really count that respiratory rate. Of course, breathing that fast uses a lot of energy, and so um, while the infant may be able to maintain that for a period of time, it's one warning sign that respiratory failure or decompensation may develop. Nasal flaring. The other signs of uh, respiratory distress that are important to look for um, are nasal flaring, uh, which is essentially a way of increasing the size of the uh, upper airway, which is a somewhat high resistance place for air to flow into. And by flaring the nostrils, one is making that passage just a bit larger. Retractions. Uh, another sign is retractions. Retractions occur when there is collapse of soft tissue because of muscular effort. And one can see retractions in a number of places when an infant is demonstrated increased work of breathing. And so their muscle activity is increased in an effort to increase tidal volume of the lung. But this is a really limited compensatory mechanism because of the shape and size of their chest. Retractions can be seen in a number of places. Suprasternal retra retractions, or the jugular notch, is a common place. In between the ribs, called intercostal retractions. A very common place is substernally or subcostally, which you can see being demonstrated on this baby as an example of when the abdominal muscle significantly contracts and reveals the edges of the rib cage. In a very young infant who has a very compliant chest wall, one might even see the sternum collapsing significantly because of their effort of breathing. And the muscular effort is strong enough to make that soft cartilaginous sternum collapse. And those are, of course, sternal retractions as opposed to subcostal or substernal retractions. Grunting. Another sign of respiratory distress is grunting. Um, we're going to demonstrate grunting in just a moment, but grunting is a mechanism by which the baby tries to maintain lung volume. It's essentially uh, closure of the glottis and breathing against that closed glottis to provide some peep to oneself and therefore hopefully maintain alveolar volume. And so our baby is now going to do a demonstration of grunting. Thank you. So grunting, as you can see, is an expiratory noise. Um, it's sort of low-pitched and coming from deep in the throat because that's where the uh, closed glottis is occurring. Seesaw breathing. In terms of the patterns that one might see, anything that results in obstruction to airflow outward is likely going to uh, show you excessive use of abdominal muscles. And excessive use of abdominal muscles can oftentimes be seen in what's called seesaw breathing. We're going to try to demonstrate that to you here. And that's where you visualize 
almost a rocking motion of the chest and abdomen as a result of increased muscle use during exhalation, essentially a forced exhalation. That's typically a sign of lower airway obstruction and the need to uh, essentially force air out of the respiratory tract in diseases such as bronchiolitis or reactive airway disease or asthma. When one has upper airway obstruction, the most common finding is retractions in the upper part of the chest, such as suprasternal retractions, or in a young infant, sternal retractions as a result of the compliant sternum. In either of these, you may see grunting or flaring as well. Head bobbing. One specific sign that tends to occur along this progression is something we call head bobbing. And head bobbing occurs in a baby who is becoming lethargic, but is still using significant amount of accessory muscle use, i.e. has a significantly increased work of breathing. And what you'll typically see is that their effort to expand the chest cavity actually results in the head bobbing up and down, which with each breath they try to take. Um, again, this is often a fairly late sign and less likely to be seen in someone who is uh, earlier in the course of respiratory distress, but head bobbing is somewhat unique to infants who have severe respiratory distress and impending respiratory failure. Now the major reason it's important to distinguish between where in the progression your patient might be is that Respiratory distress can typically be treated with interventions such as supplemental oxygen, positioning, uh, uh, treatment of directed at underlying problems like bronchospasm or airway edema. But typically the infant is able to compensate and, and maintain gas exchange without anything invasive being done. Whereas once one reaches respiratory failure, uh, assisted ventilation is going to be needed in order to correct the significant problems of hypoxia and hypercarbia, because if they are left uncorrected, the baby may progress to cardiopulmonary arrest fairly rapidly. Stress response. The infant who has significant respiratory distress is likely to be stressed in other ways and to demonstrate some aspects of a, of a stress response. And the most common sign of a stress response, of course, would be tachycardia. And so the degree of tachycardia may give one some information about how significantly stressed the baby is because it results from endogenous catecholamine production and a sympathetic response. Likewise, they may be, for age, somewhat hypertensive as a result of the stress. The infant may actually have a worried or anxious look on the face. We call that air hunger. Uh, somewhat of a look of, uh, of uh, like they're trying to say, help me, if they could talk. Um, they, look, they look uncomfortable and like they are really working to get air. And some infants will be uh, diaphoretic and show that sign of a stress response as well. Respiratory failure. The infant who can no longer exchange gas 
using these compensatory mechanisms may develop respiratory failure. And the, the formal definition of respiratory failure would be one where you have inadequate oxygenation and inadequate ventilation. Um, and so in a, in a pure sense, one would want to look at an arterial blood gas to prove that those abnormalities existed. However, there are clinical correlates to those changes that we can use to try to recognize respiratory failure at the bedside. With oxygenation, it's relatively straightforward. Um, the use of pulse oximetry to detect desaturation will give you information about the adequacy of uh, oxygenation. And this is easily corrected, of course, with the administration of supplemental oxygen. This can actually be deceiving because an infant who has even fairly progressed in the pathway to respiratory failure may still saturate well because we're administering supplemental oxygen um, and masking that particular sign of respiratory failure. Cyanosis, therefore, is a very late sign of respiratory failure and usually heralds uh, impending arrest. The infant who is not adequately ventilating is uh, one that will demonstrate some clinical symptoms that can be used to recognize hypercarbia rather than needing a blood gas to identify hypercarbia. Remember that the infant with respiratory distress is stressed, has a, a physiologic reaction which typically includes tachycardia, possibly hypertension, diaphoresis, and, a, and an anxious look. That baby may be crying and irritable and difficult to console. Hypercarbia is a very, very stressful event. Um, it's a, a, essentially a feeling of suffocation. And when hypercarbia occurs in someone who is conscious, um, it produces an expected reaction of significant agitation and a stress response that will be exaggerated above what one might see in, in just respiratory distress. And so progressive tachycardia up to ranges that would really concern you in an infant say a baby of this age with a heart rate of 190 or 200 per minute, um, as well as agitation, uh, inability to settle, are typical signs in an infant of hypercarbia. In an older child who can communicate, they may actually report they can't breathe, uh, they may be get, become uh, agitated and combative because they're essentially uh, feeling as though they are suffocating and, and acting as though they are, they're uh, unable to catch their breath. They may push away masks and uh, be very uncooperative. And these are very frightening signs that respiratory failure is occurring. We typically think of significant hypercarbia as producing somnolence, and that is the case. But remember that if you're watching an infant progress, they'll typically go through first this phase of agitation and distress before they become somnolent from excessive hypercarbia. And it takes a PCO2 that's fairly high to um, produce CO2 narcosis. And so it's not an early sign of respiratory failure. Once CO2 narcosis occurs uh, and the infant is poorly responsive to exam, IV stick, sticks, etc., there are likely going to be other signs of respiratory failure, including desaturation, that are going to um, help you identify that. 
This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.